The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to focus, concentrate, take in the Word, make sure we're uh, abiding in Christ, walking by means of the Spirit, filled by the Spirit. That's done simply through confession of sin, make sure that we keep short accounts with the Lord. So, have a few moments of silent prayer in case you need to avail yourself of that, in case you got cut off in traffic on the way here. Or something else like that happens. So let's bow our heads and open in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we can come together to look at your word, to study these important passages of scripture that relate to our spiritual life and our experiential sanctification. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and how they relate to the doctrines we've already learned, that we can uh, compare Scripture with Scripture and concepts with concepts in our own thinking and, and advance in our understanding of you, your magnificent manifold grace in our lives that has provided everything we need to face any and every uh, problem, any and every difficulty, any and every adversity in life that we might do it in your power, not our power, according to your word and not our uh, human viewpoint rationales, that you might receive the honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and we will continue our study of the spiritual life. This is sort of a basic overview, basic run-through of spiritual life concepts as explained by the Apostle Paul in the Epistle to the Romans. Romans 1 through 5 sets up the context, and then in Romans 6, 7, and 8, Paul develops the doctrines of sanctification related to justification, which is a very, very important and crucial subject. We will get into that relationship shortly. In fact, that is at the essence, I think, of both the Protestant, the distinctions between Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholic theology, and Protestant theology. It is also at the essence of the debate between what is called the free grace gospel and the lordship salvation issue. And that is why I think that the very core of lordship salvation, there's a little Roman Catholicism lurking somewhere. But we will get into that eventually. Last time we introduced the subject, we dealt with some definitions and key words 
and we started with the context. So we are continuing our study, second lesson in spiritual life basics. We ended last time by looking at the context of Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, 1 begins, what shall we say then? This implies a conclusion is being developed. There is a context for this question, what leads up to the question that is being asked, that Paul is asking as a rhetorical device to advance his argument. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? In other words, since there was so much grace when we were sinners, well, why should we stop sinning? Let's just continue to sin and there'll be even more grace. Well, why does he ask that question? And we started off by with an overview of Romans 1 through 5 last time. We didn't get all the way through, so I want to pick it up, go back, review a couple of concepts, because it sets, it sets the context, and that's important because Paul is developing in Romans an extremely intricate, logical argument. And as I was driving around today, and I was thinking about this, I thought, well, really what Romans is, is a meditation on righteousness, the righteousness of God. I got on the computer this morning and was doing some research on, on uh, word frequencies in the text, and it's fascinating to see how certain words come up again and again in certain contexts in Romans, which indicate what the subject matter is. So we review a little bit before we get started. The purpose for Romans is to explain God's demand of righteousness, His absolute righteousness, to explain man's lack of righteousness and God's gracious provision of His righteousness to satisfy His demand. That lays out the the purpose of Romans. And everything in Romans relates to this theme of righteousness. The key verse in the opening introduction is in Romans 1, 16 through 17, where Paul states, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, that is the Gentile. If you don't know it, most of you are Gentiles. Romans 1, 17, But for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, most of you were here Sunday morning. I want to stop and correlate some things for you. What did we learn about the gospel and gospel presentation in second hour Sunday morning in the Gospel of John? In John 16, we're talking about the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. And that righteousness there is imputed righteousness, which is a major issue in Romans, so right now we see not only is this one of the three things the Holy Spirit wants to emphasize and make clear to the unbeliever in every witnessing situation, but when we come to Romans, we see that this is essential for us to understand understand Romans. And we had that wonderful quote from Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology on Sunday morning, where he recognized, as many of us have over the years, that the sad thing is that in most gospel presentations, Nobody ever mentions the imputation of righteousness because nobody understands the imputation of righteousness because it's not taught from pulpits anymore. In fact, it's rare to find a doctrinal message. That always reminds me of a little anecdote that it's quite humorous 
or would be if it weren't so sad. A friend of mine was attending Dallas Seminary a few years ago, and he was in a historical theology class with one of my old and favorite professors. And that professor, we used to take his classes simply because we enjoyed all his sidelights and rabbit trails and and little innuendos here and there as much as we enjoyed the content of the course because he uh, always had some interesting things to say. And he was bemoaning the fact that that particular class, that it had been years, and this was like 19, this was back in 94, 95, that it had been years, years since he had been at a Bible church on a Sunday morning where he had heard a doctrinal message. Now, what he meant by a doctrinal message was just a message that focused on explaining the basic doctrines of Scripture, the essence of God, redemption, propitiation, uh, atonement, anything like that, just basic doctrine. Well, a student in the class raised his hand. Now, this may not mean anything to some of you, but others of you will understand it. Raised his hand and said, but, but Dr. Hannah, we can't all be like Chuck Swindoll. Now, the tragic thing is, those of you, for those of you who don't know and haven't ever heard Chuck Swindoll, is that he's about as basic as you can get. And the last thing I would ever accuse him of is being uh, any kind of a deep doctrinal thinker or expositor of the Scriptures. He's a lot of fun, entertaining, and a great storyteller. And every now and then you get some good truth from him. But uh, he certainly is not in error. It's just that he just lacks in a lot of quality, let's say, in depth. So uh, it was so sad to hear a seminary student think. What that tells you is that in the mind of the average person going to seminary, what Chuck Swindoll represents is extremely deep, profound, doctrinal teaching. And that's a tragedy. That is a real tragedy. That's why it's a humorous story, but it is also rather sad. We need to have sermons. We need to have Bible classes. We need to thoroughly understand the righteousness of God. That is the essence of the gospel, it says here. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. First faith is saving faith to faith. That is sanctifying faith or spiritual life faith. As it is written, but the righteous man, that is the one who is righteous by faith. We have to retranslate that. The uh, instrumental clause there, by faith, really goes with uh, the noun and not with noun righteous, not with live, so it should be translated the one who is righteous by faith. That's how we become righteous. It's never based on our experiential righteousness. We're never called righteous because of who we are or what we do. It's not on the basis of any works at any time, whether it's in our spiritual life or in salvation. So it should be translated the one who is righteous by faith shall live. And that's the theme of this. Uh, epistle is to explain how someone becomes righteous by faith and then what that life is like. And that's what we're looking at in Romans 6 through 8 is the explanation of that life. Interesting thing is that the word for righteousness is dikaiosune. The root is decay, which means righteous or standard. You have the uh, verb dikaiao, the noun dikaios, which is justification. And if uh, I did a word search on this, just hitting anything with that root from decay, in uh, Romans, and in chapter 1 it's used two times, chapter 2 it's used four times, in chapter 3 it's used 13 times. You see how all of a sudden in chapter 13, especially towards, really comes in at the end of the chapter, 
you see how all of a sudden justification and righteousness becomes a major subject matter. Chapter 4 is used 12 times, chapter 5, 8 times, and in chapter 6, 6 times. Chapter 7, which describes a believer's struggle with sin, it's only used one time, which is understandable, and it's used five times in chapter 8. So from just looking at that, that data, we see that it's a major subject of chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 leading into the spiritual life. The interesting thing about that is between 3.21 and 6.1, cognates of Dikaiosune and all of the related words are used 29 times. 29 times. That tells you that's the subject leading into helping us understand what the spiritual life is based on, what it grows out of. In contrast to that, the word adikia or unrighteousness is used six times between 118 and 320. So let me put this on the overhead so you don't lose it. From 118 ends, or well, 117 ends the introduction, 118 down to 321, or 320 is your first section which deals with the condemnation of the human race, why they're all under condemnation. And during that, and in that section, adikia, unrighteousness, is used six times, and the cognates of krino, which means judgment, uh, that's the verb form. Christus is the uh, noun form, and there are various other compound words that are used. But krino, or judgment, condemnation, is used 15 times between 118 and 320. So that tells you very clearly what the subject matter is in those verses. And then from about 320 down through 6.1, we have 29 uses of dikaiosune, D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E or Dikaios or Dikai or one of the other cognates of justification which helps break down the understanding of how the book is divided. If you were to outline it, it looks something like this. From 118 to 320, the human race is condemned for their lack of righteousness. And we saw that this is developed, uh, first of all, as the Gentiles. Paul is very systematic and the way he breaks this down, he starts with the Gentiles and shows that they are condemned for lack of righteousness in Romans 1, 18 through 2, 16. Of course, there were no Gentiles before Abraham, so he's treating it historically. And this is, a key verse here would be Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's that word, adikia. All unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So unrighteousness and condemnation is a major theme in this section. Then the next major section in the epistle, is in this first section, is to show that the Jews are also condemned for their lack of righteousness. And here he develops the whole idea that they have the law, they have a higher standard, yet nevertheless they did not maintain the law and they did not keep the law. And he concludes there, he says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by means of the Spirit, not by the letter. So he attacks them as uh, having an external religious uh, religious life and not a true regeneration in the soul. Then the conclusion takes place from 3.9 down through 3.20. And there the conclusion is Gentiles are condemned, Jews are condemned, all are condemned because, verse 20, by the works of the law no flesh will be justified, declared righteous, 
That's what justified really means. It's just, if you think about that, sometimes we hear phrases so many times the same way we lose the punch of what those words mean. And what justification means is to be declared righteous. It is a legal concept. Everything God does is according to uh, legality. And that's the framework for understanding so much related to the spiritual life. Even confession of sin. When you look at Romans, I mean, look at 1 John 1 9, immediately after that, you have verse 10 and then you go into 2 1. Remember, the enemy chapter divisions in the original text. You get into 2 1, and it says, even if we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Well, the term advocate and righteous are both terms that are lifted right out of uh, Greek and Roman jurisprudence. So that shows you that even the context of confession, is not experiential. It's not emotional. It is, it's using the image and the terminology of a court of law to express and to communicate our standing before God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, we need to have a little sidetrack here just to remind ourselves of some basic principles regarding the character of God. The righteousness of God is the standard of his character. Righteousness expresses his standard, his absolute perfection. That is the standard of his character. The justice of God is the application of his standard to his creation, to the angels, to mankind, to all of creation. Justice is the application of his standard. The love of God is what initiates his actions toward his creatures. This is based on John 3.16, for, for God so loved the world, and that begins with the uh, post-positive conjunction, explanatory conjunction in the Greek, in, in, or excuse me, inferential conjunction, gar, which should be translated because. It states a simple reason, uh, always. Because God so loved the world. That states his, his reason for sending the Son is the love of God. So we say the love of God initiates his actions towards his creatures. Therefore, what the righteousness of God, his standard, what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies. That's a general principle. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies. We can apply it in two directions, blessing and cursing. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. And what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns or judges. But the love of God initiated a perfect solution whereby man could meet the divine standard. And man meets the divine standard because God supplies what is necessary. And that is called imputation. That God supplies what is necessary. He is going to credit it to our account. And this is the next major section in, in Romans. And that is from Romans 3.21 to Romans 5.21. God's provision of righteousness to the human race. God's provision of righteousness to the human race, and this is first explained in Romans 3:21 through 31, the provision of righteousness, or the basis for that provision, and that, of course, is based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, His dikaiosune, His perfect standard, has been manifested, that is, revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, that means it's talking about Christ. That's how the righteousness of God was manifested, was through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the perfect second person of the Trinity who became 
100% humanity and was prophesied by the Old Testament, that is, the Law and the Prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So there talks about the imputation of righteousness, His provision of righteousness, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not faith in faith. It's not just faith. It is the object of faith that makes faith meritorious, that gives it credibility, that gives it value, that makes it efficacious. And the object of faith is Jesus Christ. And if the object is anything else, then there is no salvation. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So Romans 3:21 through 31 it lays the basis for the provision of righteousness. This is then illustrated in Romans 4. The entire chapter of Romans 4 illustrates that in the life of Abraham, that he was justified uh, by faith and not by works. Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, Genesis 15:6, and it was reckoned. That's that word that should be translated imputed imputed to him as righteousness. And that comes from Genesis 15.6, which is in the context of, of uh, Abraham believing God, but the phrase in the Hebrew expresses a previous action. Abraham had believed God. It was because of God's provision of the Abrahamic covenant. It says, and Abraham had already believed God. So it's really talking about something that happened prior to Genesis 12 even that Abraham was saved before God ever called him out from Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Then chapter 5 gives us the results of imputed righteousness. The results of imputed righteousness in 5, 1 through 21. There we have these results. There are two divisions to that chapter, 5, 1 through 11 and 5, 12 through 21. The first half of the chapter explains that we have peace with God. That's the doctrine of reconciliation. Reconciliation. And the second is the basis for realized righteousness. And there we have the comparison of Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first Adam and the second Adam. Very important to understand because it leads directly into this question of our sanctification. Now, the key verses that we have to understand in order to under, to catch the key moves in Paul's logic are in Romans 5, 12, and 13, and then in 5, 19. 5, 12, just look at this on the overhead with me, and we'll walk our way through it. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. Notice it is sin in the singular which views sin as its entirety, including the sin nature, it is not talking about personal sin here. As we saw Sunday morning in our study of John, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world not of personal sin, but of the sin of rejection of Christ. The issue here is the original sin, which is called Adam's original sin, and that is the basis for our condemnation. We are condemned, and this is so important to understand, and you have to think about this. This is not simple stuff. You are not condemned because of all the bad things you've done. And I can't tell you how many people I have to deal with over and over again who have committed some sin or they've done something, they have some thought that somehow they think they're a second class Christian because they've committed some sin or that they lose their salvation. 
They're insecure in it. And that's because they just don't understand that the basis of their condemnation has nothing to do with what they did. Your, your condemnation is not, was never based on anything you did. You were born with a child of Adam with a sin nature that was passed on genetically from father to child uh, through the male in procreation. And so you inherited a sin nature. That is a capacity to sin. And to that sin nature, and we'll get to this when we go through imputations in a minute, to that sin nature was imputed Adam's original sin. You and I are condemned because we are sinners by nature. That means we possess a sin nature. We are in Adam and we have imputed to us, reckoned us, credited to our account, Adam's original sin. That is the basis for our condemnation, not our personal sins. So that the issue is not our sin, what we do. And this means that we are sinners. I mean, we we sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. Now think about that. I know that just went right past a lot of you. It's been a long day, but you must think about this. You are a sinner. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. You were born a sinner with a sin nature to which was imputed Adam's original sin. That's the basis for your condemnation, not personal sin. Personal sins were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. So, Romans 5.12 states, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, and death, that is spiritual death here, through sin, and so death, spiritual death, spread to all men because all sinned. For an, and then he goes on, For until the law, sin was in the world. So sin is not the result of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law, as we studied in our Old Testament series, does not come in, is not written until about 1440 B.C. And the world was created at least by about 4000, 4100 B.C. So that's about uh, 2500, I mean 2500 years between the creation and the coming of the Mosaic Law. And it's amazing how many people think it's the Ten Commandments that determine what sin is. But the Ten Commandments is just one code, one place that articulates what sin is. For until the law, sin was in in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And then Romans 5.19, For it's through the one man's disobedience, the many... For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that is Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now that future tense there at the end, will be made righteous, has to do with uh, future tense from the perspective of the author Paul looking at when they trust Christ at that point, they will be made righteous, declared righteous, at the instant of salvation. That is uh, covered under imputation. And then Paul says, as his conclusion to this chapter 5, he says, And the law came in that the transgression might increase. In other words, people weren't as... It wasn't as clear that they were sinners without the law. So the law came in to make sure everybody understood how totally depraved they were. Now, total depravity is one of those words that people don't understand doesn't mean you are as depraved as you could be. I'm not, I, I won't make any comments and apply that to anyone personally. But. 
does not mean that, that everybody is as depraved as they can be. Total refers to every category of our nature, so that in the totality of our being, we are depraved, that is, fallen creatures. So when the law comes along, if you go through Leviticus, and sometime I've always wanted to do a combination study of Leviticus and Hebrews, you go through Leviticus sometime and you read through all all the things that render a person ceremonially unclean. That means they have to have some sacrifice of some type before they can they can worship the Lord or go to the, go to the tabernacle, then you will realize that just about anything and everything we do or touch or see or smell renders us rendered rendered a Jew ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. And the point of that is that we are so rotten and filthy through and through with sin that anything and everything we do just about is tainted by sin and keeps us from having a relationship with God. That's what that whole visual imagery of the of all the sacrifices and cleanness and uncleanness has to do with in the Levitical law. So that's the, that's what Paul's talking about in 5:20. The law came in to make this clear. You're not sure you're a sinner? Okay. Let's see how many things keep you from getting into the presence of God. And so you go through Leviticus and you realize that you'd probably spend all your time. I've always wondered that if if a Jew were really consistent, I often think I'd spend all my time down at the temple sacrificing doves and pigeons and goats and sheep. But I want you to get the idea that I'm just a lousy sinner, but it just takes anything, just about anything that you that you did rendered you ceremonially unclean. So where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, their knowledge of sin increased because they became more aware and thus they were they realized more and more the necessity of grace. Verse twenty one that as sin reigned in death, even so grace, sin reigned in spiritual death through all that period, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you can see where somebody just might come along, it's a little facetious, or in fact, fact there were people, and I know some people who are very serious about this, that well, if Christ paid the penalty for every one of my sins, and they're already paid for, then it doesn't matter whether I sin or not. That's called antinomianism or lawlessness, and it is licentiousness. It is taking the grace of God and using it as an excuse to sin. And Paul is getting ready to slam dunk that. But before we let Paul slam dunk it in verse 2, we will look at the doctrine of imputations very quickly. Most of this is review for you, so uh, you can just sort of sit back and tighten your seatbelt. I have three more doctrines to cover tonight. It's the trouble with doing this in a fly-by manner. Point number one, imputation is the operation of the justice of God motivated by divine love in ascribing, reckoning, or crediting something to someone for cursing or for blessing. That's the technical definition. Imputation is the operation of the justice of God motivated by divine love in ascribing, reckoning, or crediting something to someone for cursing or for blessing. So there's, uh, you can be impu- have imputed sin for cursing, imputed eternal life or, ju- or righteousness for blessing. So it can go both ways. There are two categories of imputation. First time I ever saw this was in Lewis Berry Schaefer's Systematic Theology, but we've developed it a little more beyond that. Imputations fall into two categories, real imputations and judicial 
imputations. Now, the difference is that a real imputation credits to a person something which belongs to him, something with which he has affinity, something with which there's a correspondence, a proclivity, where there, a, what, is, what is imputed and that and the object of the imputation have something in common. So, a real imputation credits to a person something which belongs to him, something which finds a correspondence uh, in between what is imputed and its object, between what is imputed and what is an object. Thus, there is an attraction between what is received and where it is received or the person who received it. A real imputation has a place to go where it's at home, where it's comfortable and consistent. For example, Adam's original sin is imputed to our sin nature. Adam's original sin and our sin nature have an affinity or correspondence to one another. That makes it a real imputation. On the other hand, Jesus Christ is impeccable or sinless. When our sins are imputed to Him as they were on the cross, there is no affinity between our sin and His impeccable nature. So that is a judicial or legal imputation. So real imputation credits something which has natural affinity, which belongs to the object, which has a correspondence between what is imputed and its object. On the other hand, what is judicially imputed does not have an attraction, affinity, or correspondence to the person or thing to whom it is given. So that is the difference between a judicial imputation and a real imputation. When something is credited where it does not belong, rightfully belong, where there is no... uh, Excuse me. There are five imputations that relate to salvation. Three of them are real, two are judicial. But first we need to look at the seven imputations. There are five real imputations and two judicial imputations. Let's break them down. Most of these we're not going to talk about. I just want to make sure we get them out on the table. Real imputations. First of all, there's human life to the soul at birth. Genesis 2.7, Job 33.4. Second, Adam's original sin to the sin nature at birth. Romans 5.12-21. through 21. Third, there is eternal life imputed to the human spirit at the moment of salvation, 1 John 5, 11 and 12. Fourth, blessings in time are imputed to the righteousness of God in us. It is not our good behavior that gets the blessings. It is the righteousness of Christ that's already imputed to us. Ephesians 1, 3 and 1 Corinthians 2, 9. And blessings in eternity are imputed to the resurrection body, which of course has experienced ultimate or perfect sanctification. There is no sin nature, so it is perfectly righteous, and that's in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Those are the five real imputations because there is affinity between what is imputed and its object. Then there are two judicial imputations. The first is our personal sins to Christ on the cross, Romans 8.31-32, and secondly, Christ's perfect righteousness to the believer at the point of salvation. Christ's perfect righteousness is... Uh, immediately imputed us at the moment of faith, Romans 4, 3 through 4, and 2 Corinthians 5, 21. These are the seven imputations. The only ones we're concerned with are the two judicial imputations and one real imputation, the second one, Adam's original sin to the sin nature at birth. That is point three. All we're concerned with is Adam's original sin to our sin nature a real imputation, and the two judicial imputations. Point number four, the understanding the imputation 
of Adam's original sin to our sin nature, and this is in Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12 reads, For this reason, just as through one man, that is Adam, the sin of Adam, you might want to add this to your, to your notes in your Bible, when it says, just as through one man sin, that, is, that sin there is the sin of Adam, Adam's original sin, entered the world. And so, spiritual death through the sin of Adam. Consequently, the spiritual death spread to all mankind because all sinned when Adam sinned. Romans 5.12 So at the same time, at the same instant in time, the soul life is imputed to the physical body because the physical body has inherited through the male the sin nature. At the same instant that soul life is imputed to the body, so is... uh, the sin nature. I mean, so is Adam's original sin to the sin nature. Point number five. Our personal sins are then at the cross imputed, were at the cross imputed or credited to Christ. God in His justice uh, attributes to Jesus Christ our sins. He imputes them. He credits them to His account and then instantly judged them on the cross. So that Jesus Christ bore in His body, carried in His body on the cross, our sins. He who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf. Point number six, Christ's righteousness is then attributed to us at the instant of our salvation. Now that we possess righteousness, God then declares us to be righteous. It is not just as if I never sinned. Just as if I never sinned does not explain it. God declares us to be just because when He looks at us, the image in Zechariah is of Joshua the high priest who is clothed in a white garment. And that is what happens to us in terms of an image. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at us, He doesn't see our sin anymore, but He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, let's chart this. We have the perfect righteousness and justice of God. But we are minus R. We lack righteousness. No matter how good we are, no matter how wonderful we are, no matter how nice and sweet, no matter how wonderful your personality is, and no matter how much your mother likes you, you are a lousy sinner condemned for eternity in a lake of fire because you can never measure up. We can never measure up. None of us to the perfect, absolute standard of God. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness is. It doesn't say all our unrighteousness. Notice that. It says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. At the cross, God imputed to Jesus Christ our sin. Because Jesus Christ continued to be personally righteous. See, by judicial imputation doesn't make him personally a sinner. He never volitionally chose to sin. He remains impeccable on the cross, though he is legally paying the price for our sins. His perfect righteousness is then imputed to us, so that it is on that basis that God blesses us. It is never on the basis of our good deeds, our obedience, anything else. 
Not even when we obey Him in learning the Word, walking by means of the Spirit, what happens is that God has already determined the blessing packages that He's going to give each one of us, both in time and in eternity. And when we grow as a believer, we are developing capacity for those blessings. Just as you would not give the keys to a brand new Maserati to an 11-year-old kid, God is not going to give certain blessings to you until you grow up and have the maturity to handle it. Otherwise, it will destroy you or you will destroy the blessing. So God is not giving or bestowing those blessings on us because of what we do. It is our obedience under the filling of the Holy Spirit and applying the Word that develops maturity and capacity so that as we grow, God then bestows these blessings upon us when we are ready for them spiritually. And if we do not grow, then those blessings are never bestowed and they just stay as potential blessings in heaven and they remain there and they're never bestowed. And when we get to heaven we'll get to see what we missed out on because of, our, because of our failure to grow. Now, the next thing we need to do is just come to our passage in Romans 6 one more time. Come back to that. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? The antinomian response, which is, he's really using this logically as a, as a way to move the argument forward. He's been arguing that man is, is righteous because of what Christ did on the cross, and that's imputed to us. It's not on the basis of anything we do. Oh, well, if it's not on the basis of anything we do, then why should, why should we ever be obedient? What exactly is the relationship of the believer to his own personal sin? That's the next stage in the argument. If, if our personal decisions are not the basis of our righteousness, then... Why should we be concerned with sin at all? So Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And then he responds in, in the next verse, may it never be meganoid. It's a very strong rejection in, in Greek. I, he couldn't say it stronger in, in a stronger way. It says, not at all, never, no. It's, a, it's extremely strong, extremely harsh indicating a complete rejection of the antinomian assumption. May it never be. And then he asks another question. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? The point that he's making there is that Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is not merely a historical fact for the believer. It is an experiential reality in your life. Christ died on the cross for your sins and at the instant you express faith and, faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you were identified and you died to sin. It, it's not only a historical reality, but it became an experiential reality, not that you felt anything, but it is applied to you so that it is as if you were there on that cross. It indicates a complete Separation, that's the sense, always the sense of death in the Scripture is separation. So, we need to briefly review the doctrine of death in the Scripture. Point number one, the first kind is spiritual death. This was the penalty for sin that was announced in the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.17 when God said, On the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. 
Now that phrase in the Hebrew translates a Hebrew syntactical construction which implies, which combines a cow imperfect second masculine verb with a cow infinitive uh, construct. Now what happens in Hebrew is that there are times when um, you want to intensify the meaning of the verb. This is your main verb. So what you do is you repeat that verb, but you use a, a, an infinitive construct along with it. You use an infinitive construct along with it, and that intensifies and emphasizes the reality of that verb. It should not be translated as a gerundive or as a participle, i.e., dying you will die. There are, I've done this before. I don't want to take the time now where I have traced through every use of this kind of construction in the Hebrew text of Genesis and it doesn't make sense anywhere. Running you will run. Jumping you will jump. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, this does not indicate two different kinds of death at all in Genesis 2.17. The only thing in view in Genesis 2.17 is spiritual death because it states the day you eat you will die. They didn't die physically. Adam didn't die physically for 980 some odd years. His physical body began to deteriorate, but I'm not sure that, um, and I'm not sure anyone can be absolutely confident, I'm not sure he would not have died physically because of the fruit of the tree of life. What is the function of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden if not to preserve life? Because that... You cannot come back in. The cherub is placed at the entrance to the garden to prevent them from coming back in because if they ate of the fruit of the tree of life, they would live forever. So the implication, the clear implication from that is that that had something to do with their, with their uh, sustenance, at least for time getting them through the testing period. Uh, maybe it was such that it was possible they could have injured themselves in some way and uh, the tree of life was a healing source. We're not sure. There is a tree of life also in the eternal state in the new heavens and the new earth. So it has some function, and what it is we're not clear about because the Scripture does not elucidate. But we do know that physical death, suffering, misery, all that is entailed in that comes as a result of Adam's decision to eat from the fruit. So spiritual death is the cause of every category of suffering. It's the cause of every category a physical death, every category of misery, adversity, heartache that takes place in the human race. So, the instant they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and the woman died spiritually, and that spiritual death, that status of spiritual death, is transmitted physically and genetically through the male of the species, so that every human being is born physically dead, I mean physically alive and spiritually dead. And as we have already seen, this means that our condemnation is based not on what we do, but on what Adam did. So that our salvation again, this is the argument in Romans 5, our salvation again is based not on what we do, but on what Christ did. So that is the development. Second category of death, physical death, separation of the soul from the body with the cessation of temporal mortal life. This applies to both 
believers and unbelievers, and the only ones who escape this are the rapture generation and perhaps those believers who survive the tribulation. Third category of death in the scriptures is the second death, which is a technical term for describing the eternal condemnation uh, on the unbeliever only, his eternally, eternality or eternity in the lake of fire. Point four, sexual death is mentioned in relation to Abraham and Sarah. It is the loss of the ability to procreate and to produce children. Romans four seventeen through twenty one, and Hebrews eleven eleven through twelve, because Abraham was a hundred years old, ninety nine years old, and Sarah was ninety, and they were well past the age of being able to produce children. That is the miracle involved in the birth of, of Isaac. Fifth, there is the category of positional death, and that's the subject of this passage. Positional death of the believer. That is, that the believer at the moment of salvation is identified positionally and legally with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the instant of our salvation, we are identified completely with His death, burial, and resurrection so that as Jesus died on the cross, so too we die to sin. There is that break. If you don't understand that concept, you will not be able to comprehend the development of this argument. I'm spending a lot of time developing this doctrinally as opposed to exegetically simply because once we understand the concepts, once you get these concepts down, we can blow through about the first 11 verses very quickly. But we have to understand these concepts, define the terminology, and then we can understand the, the nature of what... Paul is saying. This is positional death, point number five. That's the subject here. We who died to sin positionally at the moment of salvation. Point number six, there is carnal or temporal death. This is when the believer is operating out of fellowship in carnality under control of the sin nature. At that point, we are said to be dead. James 1.15 says that when, when uh, sin... Conceive, when lust conceives, it produces sin and death. And this is characteristic of the carnal life as opposed to the spiritual life, which produces life, that is, the capacity for life. So the sixth kind of, of death is carnal or temporal death. Seventh is production death or dead works. When we're out of fellowship in carnality, we cannot produce anything that is of life that counts for eternity. It's called dead works in Hebrews 6.1 and uh, Revelation 3.1, the production of dead works. And then finally, there is the sin under death, 1 John 5, 1 John 5.16, which is, explains the fact that a believer, if he continues in sin, continues in rebellion, refuses to either A, confess sin and re- be restored to fellowship, or he decides to use 1 John 1, 9 continuously as a license to sin and doesn't grow, doesn't advance, but just acts like a little boomerang and just bounces in and out of fellowship. Uh, he spends most of his time out of fellowship that eventually God takes him through a series of increasingly intense disciplines. And if there is no response, then God will remove him from this life in a miserable manner that is exemplified by Saul in the Old Testament. So Paul asked the question in verse 2, 
How shall we who die to sin? It was a reality. If you're a believer, there is a reality to your identification with Christ on the cross. So how can you who are separated, remember that's always the nuance of death, physical death is separation from the body, spiritual death is separation from God. We who died to sin still live in it. And then he asks another question. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Now this raises another important terminology, terminological phrase here, and that is baptism. And I'll never forget the time that I sat in a class, my first class, first semester, Dallas Seminary, and a professor was teaching on spiritual life, and uh, he said this was water baptism. Kind of raised my eyebrows at that. And I've done a detailed study of this, and this is not water baptism. There's just some people that whenever they see the word baptizo, the Greek word, in the Bible, they see baptism, they immediately think of somebody getting wet, getting immersed. But that is not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is what baptism, water baptism, believer's baptism, represents. It is not talking about uh, literal baptism. And there are a lot of people who will come along and say, well, in the early church, uh, everybody got baptized, everybody was immersed, so that's what they're talking about. But that is not what they are talking about. If you do a study of phrases like ace Christos, Jesus, does not indicate uh, baptism by water. So let's take a quick review of the doctrine of baptism. Doctrine of baptism. Point number one, definition. Baptism. The Greek word is baptizo, which literally means to dip, to plunge, and to immerse. Now, you always have to remember that when the English Bible was initially translated by, by Wycliffe, by Tyndale, by Cranmer, and by others, they were practicing infant baptism and sprinkling because that is what it dominated in the Roman Catholic Church and in, the, and in, in Christianity since about the 4th century A.D. Now, the beginning of the 4th century, for those of you who are a little rusty on your uh, early medieval history, that is when Constantine, the emperor, had a conversion experience, defeated the enemies of Rome at Melvin Bridge because he saw an image of the cross in a hallucinatory experience, saw an image of the cross in the clouds, and heard a voice say, by this sign you will conquer. So he immediately decided that that was a good good uh, superstitious talisman to use, and he won the battle, so he figured he'd become a Christian and made the Roman Empire Christian. Well, at that point, your citizenship in the empire is identified with your Christianity. So entrance into citizenship is made tantamount to entrance into the church, which is baptism. So baptism is a sign of state citizenship. They have linked the two together. Now, if you come along and you start, as, as uh, Conrad Grable and Felix Manns and the early Anabaptists did in the, in the uh, 16th century, and start saying that baptism is really believer's baptism and it's immersion after salvation, you're not only making a religious statement, you are making a politically treasonous statement. Okay? That's why they were taken out by Ulrich Zwingli, who was a reformer but also had a magisterial position in the cantons of Switzerland 
And he decided, he said, you guys want to make this kind of claim? Well, we'll immerse you all right. So he executed them by drowning. That'll teach you to want to immerse people. So nobody had the guts to translate the word. They just took the chicken's way out and they transliterated the word and just brought it over into English as baptism instead of translating it as immerse. But the significance of baptism is not so much, not immersion, but what it portrays, what it pictures, which is identification. And it was used a number of different ways in, in ancient Greece. Xenophon uh, in the 4th century B.C. describes new recruits in the Spartan army that they would dip their spears into pig's blood. So it's identifying the, the spears with blood and violence and battle and thus preparing them to go out uh, into the battlefield. Euripides also uses the word to talk about identification, to signify identification. So this is the point of baptism is identification. What is being identified with what? Point number two, there are three ritual baptisms. There are eight baptisms in all in the New Testament. There are three ritual baptisms, and these are water baptisms. There is, first of all, the baptism of Jesus, which is unique in history because Jesus uh, did not get baptized with the baptism of John the Baptist. That was for repentance. Jesus didn't need to repent from anything because he was the impeccable second person of the Trinity, the impeccable God-man. The baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3:13-17 was by was a ritual water baptism. The baptism of John the Baptist was a ritual water baptism, Matthew 3, 1 through 11. And believer's baptism, Acts 2, 38 and 41 and 8, 36 to 38, is by immersion after salvation. But there are five real baptisms. In a real baptism, it, is, it has to do with identification. And a real baptism focuses on the fact that uh, the person who does the identifying is a member of the Godhead. The first baptism is the baptism of Noah in 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21. B, the second is the baptism of Moses in 1 Corinthians 10, 2. There's the baptism of fire, and that is also in uh, Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Baptism of the cross, which is Christ's judgment on the cross, his identification with our sins, Matthew, uh, Mark 10, 38 through 39, and then the one that is the issue in Romans 6, 3, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Now, we have to look at that text. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. There we read, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. The verb there is baptized. Now, in the Greek you have a phrase, in numity. By means of the Spirit. Now, some people have looked at this passage and just taking this in isolation, they say, well, if we're baptized by means of the Spirit, then the Spirit is the one who performs the baptism. But there's a problem with that. And that is, all would recognize that 
this verse is a fulfillment of the prophecy that John the Baptist made back in Matthew 3 and Jesus made in Acts 1.5. That is that in the future you will be baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you. John the Baptist announced regarding uh, Jesus Christ that He will baptize you. He there, Jesus Christ, is the one who performs the action of baptism, not the Holy Spirit. So if 1 Corinthians 12.13 is the fulfillment of Matthew and Acts 1 and the prophecies, then we have to say that in 1 Corinthians, Christ is the performer of the action of the verb. And just as in those passages it states that He will baptize you by means of the Spirit in Numity, in Numity merely expresses the means of identification, just as John used water to express the means of identification, just as with Moses in 1 Corinthians 10.2, the water and the cloud were the means of identification. What we have here is that Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit as the means of identification of the believer with Himself. The picture is this, to make it very simple. John the Baptist took a person who came forward and said they were repenting for the kingdom of God. He would take them and he would plunge them into water. And when they came out, they were in a new state. It's indicated by the Greek clause, ace metanoia o. That new, new status is always indicated by that ace clause in the Greek. Jesus uses that analogy. He says, in the same way I am taking you, plunging you into the Holy Spirit, and using Him, it's by means of the Spirit, just as John did it by means of water, and I am entering you into union with me, by means of the Holy Spirit. And that makes sense when you think of passages like Titus 3.5. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the Washing of regeneration, baptismal imagery. Washing of regeneration and renewal by means of God the Holy Spirit. So technically, we need to translate this phrase, baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. It is not, to be precise, it is not that the Holy Spirit identifies us with Christ, but that Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with His death, burial, and resurrection. So that is the issue in uh, understanding baptism in Romans 6. So let's turn back to Romans 6 and briefly explain the passage. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? In other words, can we just sin with impunity because they've all been paid for at the cross? No, not at all. Because something happened at the cross. We were actually in reality separated from sin. Now, we still have a sin nature. We're still going to sin, but the power of sin is broken. See, the analogy shifts a little bit. You have the issue of death to sin and unity with Christ in the first 11 verses of Romans 6. In the, Romans 6 breaks it at verse 12. The first 11 verses mirror the second half of the book. first half of the book uses the imagery of union with Christ. The second half of the chapter uses the imagery of of slavery to sin and slavery to God. So that's the issue here. That has actually been broken, so this frees the believer now to live in obedience to God. It says, or do you not know? Are you ignorant of the realities of what happened at salvation? You know, he says this in a tone that, that implies that 
If you've been saved more than five minutes, you ought to understand this. Isn't that amazing? Most Christians today don't understand it. Yet Paul thinks that every Christian ought to understand it. That all of us who have been identified into Christ Jesus have been identified with His death. Therefore, and we will look at that conclusion next time. We're setting the stage. Now that we understand positional truth a little bit, we'll explain it a little more next time. And we will come back and see that at the cross, there are two levels of reality, eternal realities and temporal realities. At the moment we put our faith and trust in Christ, the Scripture teaches that we enter into Christ. We are ace Christan, in Christ. This is our legal position, and it is effected by means of the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. And because we are in that left circle, that in Christ circle, we can never get out. And because that has taken place, it changes our relationship to God on a temporal basis. So that it frees us now to not live outside of the right circle in carnality, but to live inside that circle on the filling of the Holy Spirit to advance to spiritual maturity. So everything that we have in the spiritual life is based upon understanding positional truth, our identification with Christ at salvation and the imputation of His righteousness to us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You that we can understand these fantastic and incredible aspects of our salvation. You have done so much for us. You have given us truly everything beyond anything we could could ask or think. And You have supplied every for every contingency and every exigency in the spiritual life. Now, Father, as we go from here, we pray that You'd help us to think and meditate on these things and to reflect upon uh, our positional identification with Christ on the cross, our retroactive positional truth and our identification with His death, burial, and resurrection, that it actually frees us from the power of of indwelling sin so that we may live for you. May we be challenged by these things in Jesus' name. Amen.